the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is. And welcome back. It is a delight to be back with Lewis and Hugh Holman. Lewis is calling in by phone. Hugh Holman is in studio again. Gentlemen, thank you for uh, for manning the helm of the show last Tuesday. I very much appreciate it. I deeply appreciate it as I deeply appreciate you, as our listeners deeply appreciate you. Uh, Lewis, since you're on the phone, I'm going to start with your dad and I'll, and I'll let – Leave it to you to, to, to come in as you wish and as Hugh calls on you. Hugh, where are we? Well, like a plan. well first, I have to say you, you, didn't, you can't say thank you again because you never thanked us. So uh, we appreciated the opportunity and had a great time uh, hosting for you. We were sad that you weren't here because you're uh, not only such a delightful human being to be with, but also such a great uh, broadcaster. And we've paled in comparison with respect to your skills. But we gave it a shot. What is it you're looking for? Exactly. <laughs> okay. right. uh, I'm going to be running for office. And can you write a max check? All right, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I, I do think we ought to do our stock and trade first, and I will uh, promote the fact that near the end of the show, I do hope that we can talk about P.J. O'Rourke yeah. and his impact on conservative thinking and how we articulate our views of the world uh, with his passing today. But, Lewis, I think I want to set this up to say uh, – to remind uh, our audience – that we have been doing uh, COVID analysis now for almost exactly two years. I just passed off to Seth a letter I wrote to the governor on April 28th of 2020 that describes the very understanding that still holds to be true about what has been going on with the COVID-19 analysis and politicization of the data. And in fact, as this has gone longer in the last 90 days or so, uh, we are seeing that we've come almost full circle back to people now adopting the conclusions we were uh, alerting the world to last uh, a year and a half ago and almost two years ago. Lewis has done uh, analysis beginning three weeks ago that I think is groundbreaking to help us better understand how ridiculous our federal government uh, has been in how it's been handling the pan pandemic generally. And it comes from Arizona as the example. And so Lewis did a couple of weeks ago an analysis that helped us understand how our silly approach at the state of Arizona, announcing the number of new deaths discovered in a given day, has been misleading the federal government in how it handles the state of Arizona data and likely other states' data, and as a result, overstating the risk of uh, death from uh, the coronavirus and COVID-19, the disease that results from it. And as examples, we've joked about the fact that the state of Arizona has this wonderful process by which it announces the new death certificates it found today of people who may have died any time in the last two years from what has been determined to be COVID-19. And they then announce it on a given day and say, today we can announce that 184 people died from COVID-19. And our newspaper reporters run out and report that we've had 184 deaths uh, reported today. And the general population doesn't get the information to understand that those are people who died any time over the last two years from 
COVID-19. And then as the week goes on, the actual number of deaths from that given day get reported. And so we described a couple of weeks ago that the repeated numbers that the state of Arizona was reporting on a given day were 184 when it turns out that by the time all the data flushed out, it was 49 people. And I went back today to look at the high watermark for deaths, and that was 178 people in a given day. Well, we've had dozens and dozens and dozens of days in which the state of Arizona has reported more than 200 people died and were reported dying on a day, and yet they didn't die that day. They happened to have found the death certificates or determined over time. So, Lewis, why don't you pick it up from there and describe how that goofy process that the state of Arizona has engaged in has had a deleterious effect on the value of information at the federal level. Sure. So as you explained very well, the issue Why, thank you, son. The misattribution of death certificates to when the person in question actually passed. Now, the, the issue here, as you pointed out, is that when... AZDHS releases a bulk uh, of any day's worth of death certificates. They'll report to the press, this is how many deaths we discovered today, in that they found, say, 100 or 150 new death certificates in this particular instance. But then if you actually read those documents, if you look at the death certificates themselves, they would be significantly farther back in the pandemic, often typically between 2 and 12 weeks prior to the day that they are disclosed. But keep in Uh, mind, the longer the pandemic goes on, the more likely it is that new death certificates of older deaths get found, so you're going to end up with... farther back in the pandemic. Exactly. So it only gets worse as as the pandemic goes on. Right. Now, the other caveat, what you need to understand very well, is that if you add up all of the deaths that AZDHS reports over the entire pandemic, and all of the deaths the CDC reports through the entire pandemic, you get the same numbers. For the right? state of Arizona. The problem yeah. is that they are misattributing the distribution of that data in a way that lumps in many, many, many deaths from several months ago and makes it appear as if those deaths are more recent than they actually were. This has the effect of making Delta deaths, deaths that happened on or before, say, December 21st, appear as though they are occurring under Omicron in the current, which we've been seeing. Oh, that's That's an interesting point, too. Say that again, Lewis. I want that to go out again, too, because everyone thinks everyone is Omicron. Not not necessarily. Right. So because we are are misallocating our deaths based on when the death certificates were found and not when the people died, we are counting many, many, many Delta deaths as Omicron deaths. I actually have the number of those here. So if you look since December 1st, AZDHS is reporting 4,005 deaths, but the CDC is reporting 6,200. For the state of Arizona. About 2,200 deaths as Omicron that should be Delta. And in doing so, in changing the shape of that distribution, it's radically overstating the lethality of those recent Omicron cases that we've been seeing. The effect of that is that they think that the pandemic is more dangerous in the present than it actually is, and so they advocate for more cautious uh, uh, responses to the pandemic that continue the suppression of our civil liberties. That is the essence of it. 
that the state of Arizona's way in which it keeps reporting deaths reported today, which are not deaths that occurred today, but deaths for death certificates that were found that could date back from the very beginning of the pandemic, piles those up on today's date. The CDC, misunderstanding the source of data and the information, highly likely following the same process with every state, is still reporting in its data a much higher rate of mortality from deaths that occurred a longer period ago, a long time ago. And we know from local data that the Omicron variant is much milder and much less lethal. And yet the federal government keeps banging the drum that we still have to protect ourselves. We have to shelter. We have to do other things precisely because they're overstating the current threat of the current form of the virus. Right, and we need to make decisions off of current data that is accurate. We don't shape our COVID response policy off of the death rate and the case rate from accurate data six months ago. We use the imperfect information that we have in front of us to try and make the decisions. And we know now we can demonstrate clearly that the CDC's picture is significantly less perfect than it could be. And the fault for that, you often tell me, Dad, not to confuse uh, uh, malice for stupidity. But the issue here, the cause of this problem, is that the CDC simply finds it much easier to update its database this way. You only have to update one, one record every day, which is the number of death certificates found, rather than having to scrap the entire distribution and re-upload it, which is much more intensive. It takes a lot more time to review as well. So it is because it is computationally easy that the masters of science have abrogated their duty and are making do with bad data and bad policy. Lewis um, and Hugh, thank you both for that update. There's an interesting thing that's kind of seemingly happened overnight, and it wasn't overnight, but there's something turned and something twisted very differently over the past, I guess, month or so. And it seems like there's there's a lot less panic about this stuff. Let me put it to you this way as we head to the break. Uh, over a month ago, the mayor of L.A. was shamed into um, into defending the fact that he didn't have a mask on when he was caught on camera. He was shamed about that, and he had to say, well, of course, I hold my breath. Whether you believe that or not is up to you. I don't. But when then you go to what took place at the Super Bowl and you saw him going around there shamelessly without a mask, there's the shaming is gone. Something has changed here, hasn't it? Something has changed. Can we pick up on that when we come back? We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, coming to you live from the Guns Etc. studios with Hugh Hallman, uh, educator attorney, former mayor of Tempe, and Lewis Hallman, managing director of Insight Analytics. The question I was just posing, Lewis and Hugh, and then I want to get into the Canadian thing, um, is it does seem, and something changed in the past three weeks or so, it does seem the pretense by the elites is over. Garcetti was shamed a month ago without a mask. Three days ago or two days ago, he was shamelessly walking around without a mask, as were so many other elites. I could be very wrong about this. 
but it also seems you don't see as much of Anthony Fauci as you used to see. You don't see of mu- as much of Rochelle Walensky. It just seems there's less from the people that um, – well, let me put not too fine a point on it. There's less from the people I loathe lately, and I don't know if that's a sign of something. Lewis, you want to take a stab at that? And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe my perception isn't accurate. I, I've, been, I've been out of the country a little bit. I can think of two reasons why that might seem to be the case, Jeff. The first is that I think at some level, common sense does dominate eventually. You know, um, if you look at the the difference in case fatality rates between Delta up to the end of December and Omicron since then, we see that the case fatality rate of Omicron is about a fifth to a seventh of that of Delta, depending on what specific periods you're comparing. Um so significant progress on that front. That makes this a lot less scary to the average person generally just walking around from a risk perspective. The other, I think, is that what we're going to get to is that we have things like the Canadian truckers protest, the Freedom Convoy, where we are seeing increasingly loud, increasingly organized, increasingly public, and increasingly uh, uh, demanding voices that are tired of the perpetual lockdown games that have been going on for the last two years. And as the midterms creep up and as voices like that grow in volume, I think that those that would dictate to us are increasingly unable to voice and defend their positions because they have to run for re-election now very shortly. Yeah, I think that that re-election thing weighs heavily on, shall we say, quote-unquote, the science. But it is interesting you point out the Canadian effect of all this. And Hugh, feel free to weigh in on this as well, obviously. But if you had asked me three months ago or any time – two months ago, any time throughout this pandemic, what would be the uh, saving institution here? What would be – the uh, the the call of truth, the baby crying, uh, the emperor's naked. I, if anyone said Canadian truckers, they would have been laughed at. It never would have dawned on me Canadian truckers. And if anyone had well, Colonel Davis, don't you think it's it's the it's the the decentralized voices of yeah. those with real skin in the That's game right. all no, across the country? It makes all the sense in the world now. Yes, you're right. I just wouldn't. It just it wouldn't have occurred to me then. But it, equally true, if you had asked me who would be the face. Of the overreach, um, you know, I said I loathe Walensky and, and Fauci. We found someone worse, and it turned out to be the Canadian Prime Minister. I mean, Canada may get us out of this. Between the Canadian Prime Minister and the French President, yeah. you've got two people that share some uh, genetic uh, capabilities that demonstrate that maybe they they really like authoritarianism, that, that they're pre-1789 Frenchmen. Well, there's a lot of continental Europe's philosophical baggage that seems to tend its way towards authoritarianism, so that isn't maybe inherently too surprising. Say something about the truckers, though, Lewis. It sounds like you were kind of you were kind of wanting to or getting into something there, in the sense well, well, of we should not be surprised. Well, I, I don't think that we should be surprised. These are precisely the kind right. of people who who would be the first kind of to the barricades on this issue because, you know, trucks generally, they they follow an owner-operator model. These are people who 
work very often. They'll own their own rigs. They'll work as contractors with various companies. And, and sort of they're responsible for getting themselves more, more loads to drive and, and sort of keeping themselves going. And they also travel and see quite a lot of how things vary from region to region in terms of the of implementing COVID restrictions and sort of the cultural pushback towards it. And so, you know, this group, I would, uh, you might think would then naturally be very, very sensitive to, to the overregulation. And I, I, I think that you combine that with this sort of permanent emergency that we've been led into where many of us, many of us, you know, even those of us that don't like the government could agree in the first month or so of a pandemic that, Maybe there's room for a little bit of overreach. But after two years of sort of flip-flopping on masks to the efficacy of vaccines to now the boosters fiascos, all the while with COVID becoming less and less dangerous in real terms, you know, it, it comes to a point where uh, – we, we sort of get that straw that breaks the camel's back, I think. Well, um, I, I think the analogy is this. In hindsight, it should not have been a surprise that blue-collar workers, uh, West Virginia miners and other kinds of folks were drawn to Donald Trump for the very same reason, that they have a life experience that that expresses that they're the ones on the ground at the at the cutting edge of what, what we're dealing with. And as Democrats want to shut down coal and do other kinds of things for bigger visions that they have of uh, sugar plums dancing in their heads, the people who are actually affected on the ground by this kind of experience finally say enough. And certainly the, uh, the analogy with what went on in Canada, I think, looks very similar to what occurred here in 2015-16 with the presidential election, and that it took a lot from the left to try to staunch that. It's interesting that uh, Justin Trudeau is now having to deal with this and get it shut down quickly so that disease does not spread to the United States and imperil poor Joe Biden's reelection opportunities. And I think that may have some of it, I suspect. I would not doubt that there was significant pressure coming from the U.S., not for the trade flows, over the ambassador bridge, but for the shutting down the political protests that would demonstrate the fallacies of the Canadian approach, which is reflective of the Biden administration approach to COVID. Let me let me offer well, two on other that, thoughts. Just last Friday, we saw Biden uh, uh, request that Trudeau yeah. use federal authority to right. deal with the protests. Right, right. But, yes, about five days ago, Joe Biden made this phone call to Justin Trudeau, transcripts of which surprisingly haven't been leaked uh, any more than the transcripts between his calls uh, with the Ukrainian pre- uh, president as well. We can talk about that. I had two other thoughts on this as well, what Canada has taught us or why Canada may have been the tipping point on this fulcrum. Let me um, – yeah, let me let – me, let me, take the full break uh, here and come back with those two thoughts and run them by you as well. Uh, I'm Seth Liebson. They're Hugh Holman and Lewis Holman, and our phone number is 602-508-0960. As we head to break as well, let me put in word for my friends at Balance of Nature, balanceofnature.com. I take it every single day, fruits and vegetables in a vegetarian capsule. If you don't like swallowing capsules, they're easy to swallow, but if you just happen not to like swallowing, easy to open and sprinkle. They're designed that way on food or in drink. 
and uh, I haven't been sick in ever since I've been taking it. What's it now been? About three years. I usually get sick a couple times a year when the weather changes, seasons change. I attribute this to balance of nature. You can too. Balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. Balanceofnature.com. Discount code BALANCE. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Uh, as we do every Tuesday, we review COVID and the world and other issues with Hugh and Lewis Holman. Delighted to have Hugh in studio. Lewis is on the phone. I Just two more thoughts on the Canadian uh, situation run by you gentlemen in the audience um, that, that may help, help us end this thing, this thing being, uh, this thing being uh, the, the, the alterations of our life uh, because of a disease that has a 98-plus uh, percent survival rate. One, truckers, the forced vaccination of truckers who cross uh, – uh, border lines, boundary lines. It seems that when so many of us were talking about children and the masking mandates, well, the school shutdowns to begin with, and then the mask mandates, and then the vaccine mandates for the children, we thought we were pretty good at being able to describe the absurdity of these COVID policies because we're doing this to a community that just... the. The least of the, the, the community least affected by covid this this we thought made so little sense people would get the absurdity of what we're doing here. It didn't quite take. So in some respects with truckers, we may have found or stumbled upon a group even less likely to be responsible uh, for either community spread of covid or even the uh, obtaining the attraction of covid because we found people not in a classroom or a congregate setting of any size, shape or form. We found people who do um, all their work and 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 then some in in a cab alone. Solitary confinement. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. There's not going to be a lot of community spread and there's not going to be a lot of uh, subjecting yourself to people who might transmit covid to you. And we are beating up on them as if um, they are carrying the bubonic plague and a hundred people in the cab with them so i think that shows the highlighting of that is uh is i think showing an absurdity that we had not yet found thank thank justin trudeau for finding the truckers to kick them in the teeth and butts on and then the second one is and maybe this is a little bit actually more poignant um a lot of us have been saying, you know, is this a dry run? If they can shut down businesses and schools and, and all this sort of thing, if they can en- enact mandates, thank God our Supreme Court struck them down. But if they can do this over this, is this a dry run? What else could they do it for? What other emergencies could they declare? What other um, what other existential crises might they do? Well, what we see here in Canada with Trudeau is what you can do with an emergency. And it turns out, thank God, we didn't try it here, although I bet there were discussions. But in an emergency, you can do this. You can, by fiat, seize people's personal assets because you disagree with their political civil disobedience. It's no longer issuing a citation for a breach of the peace. It's no longer a civil arrest. It's now seizing their assets such that the government doesn't have to defend the arrest in court, such that the government doesn't have to defend against those who might proclaim some version 
of a, of a bad prosecution or an unjust order. You have deprived people of money once they have none so that to go to court, they have nothing to access to plea their legal case. It's a pretty tyrannical thing to do that I don't think people in North America realized could happen. And thank God Justin Trudeau showed, oh, it can happen and I'm going to make it happen and I'm going to show you what we progressives mean. This is what the progressive boot on the throat looks like and we'll use it for COVID against the least susceptible population. I think that's sending a lot of signals to people south of Canada. Well, something that you just said sort of struck an idea in me that one of the things that we've had a lot of confusion about in the West, I think, for a couple hundred years, but particularly after the Second World War, is this tension between science and ethics, where we are very quick to, as you hear with all of the claims of follow the science, follow the science, follow the science, to sub, sub, you know, subjugate basically all of our moral and ethical decision-making to scientists, and yeah. that's wildly inappropriate, yeah. because what is, in an empirical scientific sense, has no bearing on what should be in a moral or ethical realm, right? You can learn all of the facts uh, about how a field is, field is structurally laid out, but all of the science in the world will not tell you the ethical way to, to cross the space. It's a very good point. We really conflated something very serious when we said follow the science. Okay, we all want to follow the science. We didn't know it meant draconian public policy decisions based on an interpretation of one view of that science. That's a really good... And it is that one view yeah, of the science. Exactly. Follow exactly. only my scientists was the, was the band. Hold that thought. We'll pick it up when we come right back, and we will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Hugh Holman was ready to go. I wasn't. I apologize. Uh, did you got? Did you? One of you, uh, Lou or Hugh, want to make uh, one more point on uh, the emergency declarations, Canada, and the notion of following the science and where that leads you? Well, I certainly start with the idea that what we really had is uh, a broader problem that the politicians were dictating which science to follow and only would select science that agreed with them. And we certainly saw those physicians and scientists that did not agree with the narrative that uh, the left wanted to spin were then shut off the Internet, shut off Twitter, taken down, blocked, and uh, otherwise excoriated for their failures. But I think Lewis has a broader point that is an important one with respect to how science has been used. Right. It's it's the Science is an abstract problem-solving methodology, right? It, it is amoral definitionally. It cannot impose any kind of value. And in this sense, it's, it's kind of like markets are in this regard. Now, markets are a wonderful tool uh, for solving problems, right? If you, if you give a market system a problem to solve, competition will ensure that that problem is solved relatively well and relatively optimally most of the time. Now, what markets do not do very well, however, is tell you what problems are worth solving. And if you, if you abrogate that responsibility to a market, then what you, do, what you get is you get the kind of runaway uh, uh, feedback loop and advertising that results in an entire generation becoming addicted to their smartphones. 
right? That that we we want to be very careful when we invite science into the domain of ethics. And it's similar. It's similar to the the notion of the military. You do not ask the generals what objectives to achieve. That is a political question for the populace and the leadership to determine what are we trying to achieve. And when you choose that end, then you ask the military resources, how do we achieve that end? What's the best way to achieve that? And in this uh, pandemic, we had not scientists uh, being directed to achieve results. We had politicians directing scientists to choose what the choices should be and try to create those decisions. We had Anthony Fauci dictating policy, not responding to what policy choices should be. So it was, we want to mask everybody, we want to shut down schools, and then they were coming up with the justifications to do that. Yeah, let me, let me see if I can add to this, uh, and you tell me if it does or if I'm, if I'm on the right track. Yes, if I said, uh, follow the math... If I say follow the math, um, that doesn't tell you do we raise taxes or lower taxes. If you have an economic right. problem, you put a group together, whatever party is or what, whatever you think you want to do or the best answer is, and you debate it back and forth. Uh, the old joke among the Jack Kemp types was what do you get when you line up 100 economists? You get 100 economists. Uh, you could do that with the military thing that you're saying. If you – Say, well, follow the dictator. Watch what – you know. follow the invading dictator. It doesn't tell you what the response should be. In fact, every president will brag uh, about how many advisors and different voices he listened to before taking or making the decision to do whatever it was he did, whether it's go to war, sanctions or something else. Unless you're Joe Biden leaving Afghanistan, in which case he says, I just listened to Donald Trump and it's his fault. But OK, right. well, that's I mean, a side story. Right. But I mean, but in any event, even with Donald Trump, you take the point. And, and that's what Sorry. was so shocking with the follow the science, I think, with COVID is everyone was, I think, for the most part, I can't think of an exception, willing to follow the science, what we didn't expect was that meant plastering that notion onto only one set of policies that could not be deviated from. In other words, going to war being the most serious thing a president ever would take us into. He listens to a plethora or a series of smart, hopefully smart advisors, and hears the debate and makes the decision. We had none of that in following the science on COVID. There was no bipartisan debate. There was no intrapartisan debate. It was follow the science. And this is what we have to do as a matter of public policy. And that was the problem. This was novel. That's what was novel here. Following the science stood for the statement of plastering that notion over any discussion, debate or dissent on the policy that you may not think is the best way to get us there. And it turns out... Right. Follow the science didn't mean literally follow the empirical science. Right. It became a mantra for instead, follow our scientists that we have chosen and ordained to speak on this issue for right. us. Right. And I think it's a hugely dangerous thing. Think about how race has been, racism has been used in that very way. Racism used to mean something. Now it's just, 
used as a totem to paste on any policy you don't like. You don't like X, you're racist. Trudeau did it with the truckers. This is a racist movement, he said, right? I mean, it, it doesn't mean anything anymore. It's just used to, um, what, as a shibboleth, I think that's the right word, as a shibboleth to quiet, silence, debate and dissent. And that we weren't, that, that's not an American thing. That's just not in the American tradition, nor is it part of the actual uh, definition or tradition of scientific inquiry or the scientific method, quite honestly. And the grave concern I have is how easily Americans got used to yep. losing these individual rights. Yep. And Lewis, I think you said it best uh, many months ago that we have extreme actions being taken by China and that we don't weld our citizen citizenry into their homes means we must be doing it right that the most extreme example can be pointed to, and since we're not that bad, we must be doing it well. And the answer really has to be, given the extreme actions taken in the name of science and health, we have cost our society not just economically, but hundreds of thousands of people who have succumbed to drug addiction, alcoholism, depression, uh, millions of children who lost an entire year, if not more, of their education, we, we've been talking about loss of learning. You can't lose something you never got. Mm -hmm. And we have millions of children. Of, of, of this follow the silence mantra at the exclusion of ethics has actually been just that point. When you are, when you are told to follow the science, to follow that, that one dictatorial mantra, we see this in, in collectivized states all across history, that when you reduce all human flourishing to one target, Every other metric of human happiness in existence goes right out the window. And so if minimizing COVID outcome is our game, then we did that with the expense of educating ourselves, creating a fulfilling civic life, uh, 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 spending time with our families and loved ones, and, and doing all of the other hold, things. Hold it right there. For a exactly right. Human exactly right. Hold it right there. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. Here to the Honorable finds it's due and there are tears for passing things, Virgil wrote. We lost P.G. O'Rourke today. We spent some time talking about him. Lewis, say a word or two about P.G. O'Rourke if you'd like. P.G. O'Rourke was one of the funniest and most entertaining political writers that I've ever had the pleasure of reading. But more than that, I think he captures a spectrum of American political thought and, and aging over the last 40 years that is really hard to find elsewhere. I will also say that his work on Adam Smith made that economist about as accessible as it's possible to get. He, everything in his anthology is worth reading and worth reading sort of as part of a complete set. Nice. You? Yes, the discography of a writer um, is maybe the way to think of it because his the lyrics that he put together in his write, written work are truly genius words. And for those out in our audience who may not have accessed P.J. O'Rourke before he passed, uh, I highly recommend him because he provides a humorous look at the world's problems in a way that makes it very accessible and, frankly, the way we need to address those on the left about our ideas. His use of humor makes the conservative case um, at least the libertarian conservative case, um, accessible. 
and his work that includes Holidays in Hell, which are, is an international examination of the U.S. foreign policy and engagements, helps people understand some of the most challenging problems we've had in world history. Equally, Eat the Rich is the best way to access economics to understand why the U.S. system works well when it's working well with the least amount of government restriction and the most amount of freedom. And it, it shows why. And his death today is a great loss to our future because now his works are fixed in time and we will not have his great insight in the future uh, to help us find our way when we lose uh, our direction. Uh, he certainly helped us in the era of COVID to some degree and uh, to his family and friends. We are sorry for your loss, but thank you for uh, P.J. O'Rourke's great commitment and addition to our lives. Thank you, Holmans. Thank you all. Until tomorrow, God bless you all and class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs>